I get asked about suggested reading on a fairly regular basis. A lot of people want to know where I encounter different ideas. And so I go ahead and cap every year with a suggested reading list, just nine books that I read during the year that I thought were very interesting and had an impact on the way I had been thinking about issues. Obviously, this is a couple days late, but I had a very busy holiday season, so hopefully you'll forgive me. That said, let's go ahead and begin. This is my top nine reads of 2023. Number one, Skin in the Game, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Skin in the Game is a book about a lot of things, but primarily it's a book about what happens when you separate the cost of a decision from the people who actually make that decision. What does that do to the incentive structure of your society? This is really important because it speaks to what happens when you scale a society. When your society gets too large and you start entrusting certain institutions and bureaucracies with key aspects of your decision-making process, and they're specialized and they're professional, but they're also really far removed from the different communities they're supposed to be serving. They no longer have skin in the game. They're no longer incentivized to actually do what is best for that community, what actually solves that problem, but instead are incentivized to better themselves because it's not really going to impact the area they live in. It's not going to really have a significant cost to their way of life. What's interesting about this book is that Taleb is an options trader. That's his profession, and that's kind of the direction he comes from when he's talking about the psychology behind decisions, whether or not you have skin in the game and how that impacts the way that you look at these different options. However, he's also hitting on conquest laws. I don't know if he understood that, if he's familiar with these. He certainly doesn't reference them in the book, but the phenomenon that he's talking about, this bureaucratic separation of interests from original mission is something that is squarely in the wheelhouse of conquest laws. And so it's interesting to see him approach the same concept, but from a different direction. He also explains why the intolerant minority will always beat the more accepting majority, which of course is counterintuitive for a lot of people. It's very different from the way that people think that democracy or politics or the culture wars work. But he explains why an organized minority that has very specific intolerant demands is far more likely to win than a larger and accepting big tent, putting away the kind of the populist delusion, the big tent delusion that we talk a lot about in neo-reactionary thought or Italian elite theory. So it, it's a book that dovetails very well with this space and the different ideas and theories of politics that we talk about. I always enjoy reading a book that approaches a similar subject and comes to similar conclusions, but does so from a different discipline, from a different angle, because that allows you to understand every facet of something, get the full picture. I always think that's a very valuable thing to do. So make sure to read this one. Taleb's a good author. He writes in a very entertaining style. It's a pretty easy read, quick to get through. Go ahead and check it out. Number two, Return of the Strong Gods. R.R. Reno. Return of the Strong Gods is a book that is very valuable for explaining to people why certain forces are taking hold in our world today, why it seems like nationalism and populism are resurgent in a time where many of the people in charge are very scared of those different movements. The author tends to point out the shortcomings of Enlightenment and liberalism, pointing out why trying to put away Many of the key aspects of human identity ended up failing and causing significant problems when it comes to social cohesion and meaning. 
Reno discusses the emergence of this post-war consensus after World War II about the need to stop any form of totalitarianism and that so many people thought that the core of totalitarianism was a connection to larger forces of identity, connection to meaning and purpose, to the transcendent. And so it was really important for these kind of new modern states to limit access to that. And this never again mentality has some very serious side effects or really elites end up leaning very heavily into this radical individual atomization and free market fundamentalism. And of course that stuff has its benefits. There are many aspects of modern life that we enjoy and have a hard time understanding how people went along without that are connected to that. And I think Reno is pretty honest about his own worries here about how he would personally have difficulty parting with certain liberal precepts. But at the same time, he recognizes that these old gods are coming back, that these strong gods are coming back, that these realities about identity, nationalism, populism, they are going to reemerge and you can be as concerned as you want, but that's not going to stop what's happening because we're transitioning away from the time of liberal ideology and we're returning back to the things that have been true about human identity for a very long time. And so for Reno, it's not necessarily trying to prevent the return of the strong gods, but about channeling them the correct direction. Because again, to Reno's credit, he understands the failure of our current elites. They're trying to contain this aspect of human nature. I mean, they've been trying to contain it for a long time, but it's very obviously failing. It's very clear that this stuff is going to break through. And so while they're running around and screaming about fascism or whatever, he recognizes, okay, this is a reality that's going to occur. And so what we need to do is channel this into something healthy, make sure that this is something that benefits society and not something that creates an ugly backlash when it emerges. And his idea is basically, I think the church, I think that religion is kind of the core component of identity that he focuses on, but he also recognizes that other parts of this are going to emerge. They are going to be real and they are going to need to find a healthy home inside society because continued attempts at suppression are going to end very, very poorly. So I recommend this book. It's not revelatory if you're familiar with these arguments, but they are laid out in, I think, a very honest way by someone who isn't necessarily comfortable with all of them, but understands the truth of it. And so I think it's worth your time. Number three, Clash of Civilizations, Samuel Huntington. Samuel Huntington was an international relations guru and a professor. Famously, Francis Fukuyama was one of his students. And of course, Fukuyama had a alternative idea of the way things are go. It's the clash of civilizations model versus the end of history model. I think we can probably say pretty confidently at this point that Samuel Huntington won that particular debate. But it's very interesting to go back and read this book because it was written in 1995 just after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he's writing about what the post-Cold War world is going to look like. The shift away from the bipolar world is really important because many countries and alliances had been held together simply by the fact that there were these two major forces that dictated everything to do with international relations. And while Fukuyama looked pretty good initially by predicting that we'd have this kind of monopolar Western hegemony that would control everything and force everybody into one homogenous monoculture, we're starting to see how Huntington won in the end because he spends a lot of time talking about the ways that different civilizations are going to attempt to modernize while de-Westernizing, how these things used to once be linked and to modernize, was to Westernize, was to turn your culture 
into a mirror of the West that was required. But now these countries are looking for a way to split those two aspects apart. It's interesting to see what he gets wrong and what he gets right, because again, of course, this book was written in 1995 and he doesn't predict everything accurately. He certainly fails in particular predictions. However, the thing that he predicts that I think is most important is the same phenomenon that Reno observed in Return of the Strong Gods. Huntington believed that we were going to see the end of the age of ideology, that we we're going to leave behind these secular economic identities that had dominated the globe for so long. And instead, we were going to see the resurgence of classical cultural identities, identities that were incompatible and could not homogenize in a global way. Now, Huntington believed that those identities would modernize. They wouldn't just be a return to three or 400 or 500 years ago, but that there would be a way to synthesize those classical understandings of identity with modern aspects of our world. And again, he believed that religion would play a central role in these identities. It wouldn't be the only factor, but he believed it would be the most significant factor, especially when it comes to updating, kind of synthesizing again, the modern with the more classic understanding of culture. So a great book, though it is a little clunky in places, Huntington isn't actually the best writer, but I mean, it's a pillar of international relations for a reason. It's a classic. You should be reading it. Number four, The Ancient City, Fustel de Cologne. This was my favorite book that I read this year, and that's because Fustel doesn't just take a look at the events of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, because you're probably very familiar with those, but instead he takes you to the very beginning of those cultures and encourages you to approach them as if they were completely alien. It was a totally alien experience. You are unconnected. You are unfamiliar with the way that these people lived, because it is a truly different way to understand the world. And Fistel really focuses on religion in this book because this is the core of the ancient identity. This is the water in which they swim. This is the way that they try to understand everything around them and the way that they construct their family relations, their laws, the way that their governments work. Every aspect of financial transactions is in some way touched on by the religious understanding of the world. And when he's talking about the ancient Greek and Roman religions, he's not really talking about what we think about with Zeus or Jupiter or things like that. He's talking about the truly ancient ancestor worship that existed where the sacred hearth is the center of the home and everything is connected to the continuation of that worship. Property rights exist, but they only exist because your ancestors are buried on that land and you need to continue the worship by going to their grave and feeding them and caring for them in the afterlife. So yes, you have property rights, but there are also property obligations. This isn't something that you could just sell easily with a contract. In fact, the introduction of that at some point becomes rather scandalous, but it's very interesting the way that every aspect of this is, again, tied back to this ancient form of ancestor worship. I also find this book fascinating because it's a great case study for the metaphysics of power as laid out by another French thinker, Bertrand de Juvenal. De Juvenal talks a lot about how the central government needs to break down all competing social spheres, all these other organizations that might hold power, whether it be families or churches or other things, if it wants to wield the power of the entire state, of the entire culture, then it needs to go ahead and get rid of these. 
And in Fustel's book, he explains how the different gins, these patrician families, used to have incredible control over the people in their families and those attached to their families, their servants, their slaves. They had great control over their freedmen and how they could basically restrict the ability of the state to create different laws. Each family's religion was very particular to that family. They were not interconnected in some kind of larger structure. And so it made it very difficult for the city to make wide scale demands or laws that would organize a larger political entity because the families had this amazing amount of influence that was connected to the practice of the religion, which in turn basically dictated everything about the life of the individual. And so Fistel shows how this transition from individual tribes who are loosely connected to each other, to city-state, and eventually to empire, each one of these transitions also required an alteration of the religion and a weakening of family bonds. So if you're a fan of Greek and Roman history, or you're a fan of understanding how power works, or you're a fan of both, and I know many of you are, then this is an absolute must-read. Number five, Heroes and Hero Worship, Thomas Carlyle. This book began as a series of lectures given by Carlyle at universities, and it still has that form. Carlyle believed that hero worship was the foundation of society, and that's why it's the most consistent thing you can find in pretty much every human civilization. In each lecture, he gives a different heroic archetype, the hero as the divine, the hero as the prophet, poet, priest, man of letters, and king. Each archetype also comes with a few examples that he goes on about at length, whether it's Odin or Napoleon or Muhammad. Many people will try to use this book to introduce you to Carlyle, but I don't think it's the best place to start. However, it is a critical book. I mean, this is the book that is often credited with creating the great man of history archetype. Carlyle is always a challenging read, especially if you're not used to his style, but it's always rewarding and I fully endorse this one. Number six. Thomas Sowell, A Conflict of Visions. I haven't recommended Thomas Sowell in any of these videos yet, and it's great to finally get to correct his absence. If you've never read him before, this is a really good place to start. It's a small book, and it's not super abstract with a bunch of theory. It's just very down-to-earth and provides an excellent framework for understanding the left and the right. Sowell looks at what he sees as the two basic understandings, the moral visions of the world. You have the constrained tragic vision and the unconstrained or utopian vision. Those with the unconstrained vision see humans as blank slates. There is no set human nature. They can be manipulated in any way necessary. Those in power can change core aspects of human identity and human action to create the utopian perfect society that they envision. In contrast, the constrained or tragic vision is one which understands that humans do have a specific nature and that that nature is imperfect. It is fallen. There will be war. There will be greed. We will always be self-interested. And these aspects of our character cannot be purged. We can never socially engineer some kind of utopia. So instead, the constrained vision understands that tradition is there for us to learn from our mistakes over time and hopefully get a better framework in which we can live. But we can never actually create a perfect society. We can never remove all of the flaws that make us human. Instead, we must live within those limitations. 
And of course, starting from two entirely different moral visions has a serious impact on the way you're going to do politics. The left takes the unconstrained vision. Obviously, they believe you can change anything. You can change your gender. You can completely re-engineer society however you like. If only you had enough power given to the government to do so as where the right has the constrained tragic vision. They understand there are certain parts of who you are that are always going to be there and you can't get rid of them. And when you approach politics from these two different directions, you're going to have a serious conflict in the way you try to resolve political questions. So once again, you might not get hit right between the eyes with some kind of revelation from this book. It's an older book and many thinkers and pundits and writers have taken the ideas and filtered them down to you already. So you might be familiar, but Thomas Sowell is one of the best guys on the right. Yeah, he might be wrong on some things, but he's still an excellent thinker and his books are always worth reading. And he provides a very good framework for understanding conflicts that holds up even today. So make sure to read it. Number seven. The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis. I'm somebody who likes to reread books that really just opens things up for me, especially if it's a book that is complex or has deeper truths. You simply don't get everything the first time through. And this is certainly true with C.S. Lewis, even though he writes in a very approachable style, it's something that the layman can approach very easily. He's always layering in deeper lessons, and that's why I enjoy revisiting his works from time to time. This year I reread The Problem of Pain and something different jumped out at me. There was a different emphasis that was brought to the forefront. Obviously the book does what you'd expect from the title. It addresses the issue of theodicy. If there's an all-powerful God, why is there pain? Why is there suffering? And this is important because for some reason every internet atheist, every 13-year-old who logs into Reddit still thinks that nobody has ever thought about this problem. You still have grown men like Sam Harris or people show up on the internet and be like, oh, but there's pain, man. Has anyone ever thought about that? Has any Christian ever considered the problem that things are hard sometimes? So books like this are still very valuable because apparently this is still a stumbling block for a lot of people who think that theologians just have never addressed this problem at all. Now, to be clear, C.S. Lewis's books are always more of a primer than any kind of thorough discussion of theology. He's your first introduction to the issue and the higher thinking ordered around it. It's not some kind of exhaustive defense or examination of the issue. However, this time, what struck me while going through the book was C.S. Lewis's discussion about what it means to be truly loved by a personal God. Many atheists tend to dismiss the idea of a personal God as ridiculous, and they do this because they're like, oh, well, how could a God care about me? He's got to do all these other things as if God had the attention span of a four-year-old looking at video games. But C.S. Lewis explains that people are uncomfortable with the idea of being loved by a personal God, not because they have some kind of a logical misunderstanding about how God allocates his attention, but instead they are uncomfortable because the implication of that idea is that God will care enough about you to care about how you turn out. An impersonal or distant God might just create you and then move on to more important things, allowing you to move along the track of life in the way that you see fit. But a personal God who actually loves you and actually cares about you might require you to do difficult things, might even put you through hard times. If you're a parent, you understand that giving your children everything they want is a disaster. And in fact, adversity is one of the critical things to growing as a person. 
So if God is real and God loves us in a personal way, then pain may not be some kind of random accident or it may not be some kind of penalty for our mistakes, but instead it might be an intentional tool of refinement and there might be certain requirements incumbent on us as those that are loved by a real personal God. And that is a notion that soft, secular, modern people who just want to live their lives and be left alone are terrified of. So yeah, definitely read it if you haven't. All C.S. Lewis is basically an automatic recommendation, so check it out. Number eight, State of Emergency, Patrick J. Buchanan. I mean, is there any one single human being who deserves a bigger apology than Pat Buchanan in politics? Probably not. Maybe Ron Paul. Buchanan is the guy who was the prophet unwelcome in his own town. He was excised from the Republican Party for being right about everything. His platform was basically the playbook that was photocopied for Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, and in state of emergency, he's warning about the invasion coming across the southern border. The book is written in 2006 in response to George W. Bush's policies, which of course Buchanan ran against, and it prophesies pretty much everything accurately. The nice thing about Buchanan is, of course, he's not afraid to go after the difficult issues. He's willing to address not just the economic problems or the crime issue associated with immigration, but he's also willing to talk about the cultural impact, the way that it's going to change American identity and the way it's going to alter the ability of Americans to participate in their government going forward. Buchanan also doesn't just go after illegal immigration. He addresses the problems of illegal immigration and most importantly explains why the Republican Party is willing to be complicit in this transformation that negatively impacts their voting base. So yeah, I don't know what to say. Read more Pat Buchanan. Read more Paleocons. Do it now. Number nine, America's Cultural Revolution, Christopher Rufo. Chris Rufo is, frankly, the most effective conservative activist alive right now, so when he releases a book, you should probably pay attention. America's Cultural Revolution is a book about the ideological roots of wokeness, and it traces the movement all the way from the 1960s to today. Rufo stops to look at key pieces of ideology advanced by thinkers like Herbert Marcuse or Derrick Bell. And he does a good job of explaining how this whole thing hangs together, how one piece led to the next. But I think the most powerful and useful part of this book is the way it shows you how everything was really there at the beginning in the 1960s. Rufo doesn't hold back when he's explaining the vile and violent and vicious ideology advanced by these people, the way that they were willing to use bombing and terrorism rape, torture, all kinds of things to advance their political cause, and that every piece of anti-white hate, every piece of radical feminism, every piece of anti-family, anti-Christian hatred, they were all baked into this movement at the beginning. Now I have my disagreements with Chris Rufo in this book in particular. I disagree with the way that he characterizes the need to return to the Civil Rights Act, the true spirit of the Civil Rights Act. I would argue that the Civil Rights Act did pretty much exactly what was intended. And so returning to its origins is kind of the opposite of what you're trying to do if you're trying to purge this DEI woke philosophy from our institutions. But it's still a very valuable read and I highly recommend it. 
All right, guys, so that's my top nine reads of 2023. If you want to look at issues and understand where I found some of the insights that I've been sharing, these are the books that you should be turning to. If you like this video, go ahead and click like. If you haven't subscribed to the channel, now is a great time to do so. If you haven't followed me on Rumble or Odyssey or Twitter or Substack, all of the links are down below in the description. If you'd like to go ahead and get these broadcasts as podcasts, you can subscribe to the Oren McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platforms. And of course you can read all of my columns and watch all of my videos over at the blaze. Thanks for another amazing year guys. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.